Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Child killer in Texas, the murder of three black sisters and serious questions about the investigation. When you have the killing of three little girls, the community should have been notified. Then. I'm getting ready to quit my job. Cop out. Major cities across the country facing huge shortages of police officers, potentially making us less safe. And? There's no cure for autism. Black kids and autism. Why are our children more likely to be diagnosed and less likely to receive appropriate care? I would be flattered if he felt like I reminded him of his mother. Viola Davis and her real-life leading man, teaming up to bring Michael Jordan's story to the big screen. I sat down with them to talk all about the new movie, Air. I believe in your son, but a shoe is just a shoe. Until my son steps into it. That's all tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. everyone and welcome to the show. I'm Mara Escampo and we begin with a very serious story that we have been tracking. The murder of three sisters in Texas, all under the age of 10, killed more than eight months ago. What happened to these three young girls and why doesn't anyone know about it? The sisters, ages five, eight, and nine, were reported missing last night. The evening of July 29th, 2022, Texas mother Shamanique Oliver immediately calls 911 after her babysitter and adult cousin Paris Props alerted her the siblings had simply vanished. A shoe belonging to one of the girls was found near a pond, along with footprints in the mud near the water's edge. It's just like any rural community. Everybody knows everybody. There was lots of and lots of people out searching for the, uh, these girls. Around 2 a.m. the next day, July 30th, a parent's worst nightmare. Officials have recovered the bodies of nine-year-old Zyariel Oliver, eight-year-old Amaya Harvey, and five-year-old Tamari Oliver after they were reported missing last night in Cass County. Investigators said they found their bodies in a pond behind me. Texas Parks and Wildlife in Cass County Sheriff's Office, along with their some of their volunteer fire departments responded to the area. We located items of clothing around the pond and in the pond. So we centered the search on that small body of water. The cause of death initially reported to be drowning, a terrible tragedy. Then, months later, a shocking announcement. Nearly eight months later, after their bodies were pulled from a Cass County pond, the DA says that case is now a homicide investigation. An autopsy reveals all three girls were strangled to death. They also suffered cuts to their faces. In her only interview since the killings, Oliver told the Daily Beast, quote, all I want is justice for my babies. She also revealed her female family member who was watching the girls that night has apparently stopped responding to her phone calls and emails Props also isn't speaking to investigators, according to the victim's mother. Authorities say multiple witness statements have been obtained. DNA testing is ongoing and that investigation will continue. Revolt Black News made several calls to the Texas State Rangers and the Cass County Sheriff's Office for updates on the murder case, and our calls were not returned. 
But I did speak with Cass County District Attorney Courtney Shelton, our conversation revealing interesting details. One, authorities have known they were investigating a homicide since soon after the murders, but waited to notify the public, though she wouldn't say why. Two, they have no suspect at this time. But suspect or not, authorities have known likely since last summer that foul play was involved in this gruesome triple homicide. And that delay in notifying the public and advancing the investigation has forensic pathologist Dr. Joy Carter concerned. When you have the death, the killing of three little girls, the community should have been notified. They should have been notified very quickly. The investigator should be out investigating. They should be looking for evidence, draining that pond. In my opinion, there's really no excuse to have eight months lapse when three little girls have been killed. Carter, who has worked on more than 20,000 autopsies throughout her 40-year career, says because the sisters were strangled to death, noticeable clues were likely left on the victims. When a body comes out of water, you may wait the next day because as the blood settles in the body, injuries to the neck area will show up as bruising underneath the chin and around the sides of the neck. That shows up as bruising. That should give you an indication something's not right. Dr. Carter hopes the ongoing Texas investigation doesn't become part of a disturbing and sadly growing trend where families never get answers. Recently, I have seen more unsolved murders with black children than I expected to see. And this is generally in an area where the investigation is poor, the funding is poor, and unfortunately, lack of interest. Moving on now to another story that's been trending all over social media. An Indianapolis mother is pleading for help to find her missing 17-year-old daughter. The phone just, uh, it just goes straight to voicemail now. I just need the police to please take this seriously. I'm a very concerned parent about my child and I need Shariah to be found and brought back home where she belongs. Alicia Hollowell is still waiting on news of her missing daughter, Sharia Williams. The Indiana 17-year-old left home for school on February 23rd of this year, but never arrived. The high school junior is among 75,000 missing black women and children currently in the U.S. One of the things that is really startling about this crisis is the fact that we know that there are more than 75,000 black women and girls that are missing currently within the United States states, but it is startling because that's an estimate. Minnesota State Representative Ruth Richardson says the data is so alarming in the black community that she helped pass a measure in her state to create the nation's first office of missing and murdered African-American women. We don't even know the true number of black women and girls that are, are missing. And the growing problem of the lack of media attention in cases involving murdered or missing people of color has California proposing the start of an ebony alert. This new tool would go beyond the nationwide Amber Alert to notify Californians of missing black women and youth. 
our missing person cases stay open four times longer uh, than other folks' cases. And so the Ebony Alert, I think, is a great step forward. The day she didn't return from school, I was calling her phone, no response, no answer. And so that's when I called the police and filed a report with them that she was missing. The police came out here and she was listed as a runaway. The police have not taken this serious. Uh, they are still just saying that she ran away. Natalie Wilson, the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation, adds when authorities label a missing teen a runaway case, it's often doomed from the start. Nine out of the 10 cases that we receive from families whose child or children are missing, law enforcement tend to classify them as a runaway. If you're classified as a runaway, you do not receive the Amber Alert and you definitely do not receive any type of media coverage at all. And when Alicia reached out to us, she said, something is wrong. My daughter has never left home voluntarily. So we believe that she's an endangered child. After the break, police officers are asking for a completely different kind of reform, claiming they need more support and better pay. Do they have a point? Welcome back. Police departments all across the country are struggling right now, having a hard time attracting new officers or even keeping the ones they have. Now, some are considering pretty extreme measures like hiring civilians to handle some police work or lowering the qualifying age to 18. Why are so many cops leaving and how is it affecting our safety? I'm getting ready to quit my job. Bye-bye badge. All across the country, cops are quitting or retiring in record numbers, with several cities declaring it a state of emergency. You want to be out there and serve. You want to be out there and protect. But you run the risk of even doing your job right and being ridiculed by the community. They're afraid to do their job. And unfortunately, that can actually risk the life of the officer because they're hesitating doing their job because they're afraid of the consequences that may happen. In New York, union officials say they've almost reached the point of no return. We have a recruitment problem where we can't fill an academy class. 1,225 NYPD officers stepping down in 2022, compared to just 477 in 2020. Including retirement, 3,200 officers left the department last year, the highest number in 20 years. The New Orleans Police Department announcing they'll start hiring civilians to make up for the shortage, saying they'll bring on up to 75 regular citizens to do things like write traffic tickets, monitor big events like Mardi Gras, and help find missing pets. The competition for officers is so fierce that some places are sweetening their offers. Aurora, Colorado, trying to poach officers from New York with a starting salary that's 50% higher. Memphis, Tennessee, offering signing bonuses of $15,000. And while some are raising incentives, others are lowering the bar. The state of Ohio introduced a bill to reduce the age to become an officer from 21 to 18. 
Other areas considering lowering or getting rid of college requirements, ignoring prior drug use offenses, or even traces of any criminal record. So what's the cause of this cop-out? Let's start with the pandemic. Crime went way up. Homicides spiked almost 30% in the U.S. Oh boy, oh boy. And then there's the violence against police. In 2020, over 60,000 officers were assaulted. Over 30% of those assaulted sustained substantial injuries. And then some say morale is down following years of anti-police public sentiment in the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. Especially after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. One survey found that 51% of officers considered quitting because of anti-police public sentiment. 59% reported knowing a colleague who left because of negative public opinion towards law enforcement. One national poll found confidence in police has hit a new low, with just 39% of people saying they think police are adequately trained to avoid excessive force. Add to that burnout from long hours and even double shifts because of the staffing crisis. I remember when I became a police officer, I remember talking to my father uh, who grew up in Durham, North Carolina, and he said to me very clearly, why would you want to be the police? These were the same people who had fire hoses and had canine dogs, and they used these dogs and these hoses against us. So that's an uphill battle that every municipality is gonna deal with as far as recruiting minorities. Black officers are feeling the pain the most. Dr. DeLacy Davis was on the job for 20 years in East Orange, New Jersey, before choosing an early retirement. I think for black officers in particular, um, it's a struggle, it's a strain. Dr. Davis founded Black Cops Against Police Brutality in 1991 to ensure that people of color are guaranteed equal rights under the Constitution and to improve community police relationships. This generation that my children are in don't see police officers in the neighborhood, and when they see them, they're militarized. When they see them, they're beating someone down. I think law enforcement has to examine itself. I believe wholeheartedly that the police cannot police the police. And so we have to put safeties in place to ensure that police are delivering the services that they were sworn to give to communities, especially those who are marginalized and disenfranchised. Joining me now to dig deeper into all of this, Hawk Newsom, Black Lives Matter activist, and Brandon Tatum, former police officer, author, and radio host. So I'm gonna get right into this, Hawk, with you. Some are attributing this shortage of officers to widespread calls for police reform. And I wanna read you a quote about that. We found one person saying, quote, the only people that are happy are the cop haters, activists, and defunders. What's your response to that? Well, let's start with the most obvious thing that nobody really understands. No one defunded the police. New York actually gave police an increase. Chicago, where crime is just atrocious, their cops got an increase, and LA got an increase. Most precincts around the country got increases. So what they do is they use defund as a talking point, when in actuality, it never happened. Joe Biden actually promised to punish local municipalities that defunded the police. So the whole defund thing is a talking point for the right by the left. When you talk about police who resigned, they hated to be under scrutiny. People, what were people saying? Like, obey the law? What were people saying? Stop 
killing people, stop brutalizing people. They were just pushing for more accountability. And these cops couldn't handle that. They said, hey, if we have to police the right way, then we'd rather quit. So, Brandon, when it comes to the argument that the resignations and, and trouble filling the ranks is because of calls for social justice reform, you know, there shouldn't be a tension between safety and social justice. We should be able to have both. So how do you address this issue? I mean, the police aren't just quitting just for the heck of it. And police aren't quitting because of accountability issues. I mean, police officers, when you go through training, um, you are held to a high standard. And good police officers like myself, when I was on the police department, we hated people that would not follow the rules because you, you you draw unnecessary scrutiny against us. When you talk about defunding the police, it's clearly some police departments were disbanded. Some police departments, let me just explain real quickly, uh, defunding. Like defunding is just not a, a number of financial support. It's also moral support. It's also when you're degrading law enforcement around the country. Are you kidding me? That's absolutely inaccurate. I'm not just making this up for something I read in a book. I experienced it as a police officer and other police officers are telling me this. So defunding, when you demoralize, dehumanize police, then good people don't want to be in the profession anymore. And that's why we see so much attrition. That's why we see a lot of people retiring. It has, it has absolutely nothing to do with accountability. You cannot talk about defunding the police without stating the main premise, which is take money from the police and invest it into the community, invest it into the schools, feed people, train people, teach people vocations. That's what defunding the police was all about, taking the money and investing it into the people. Because when you fight poverty, when you feed people, when you teach people, you decrease the crime. So you won't even have a need for these police. But you can't give an honest answer about defunding the police without stating that the most simple premise that everybody agrees on. You just said that they took the money and gave it back. Now, we all understand what happened in these cities. They defunded the police. They reallocated funds. And then the crime skyrocketed. And people in the community are begging for law enforcement to be reintroduced into the community. Therefore, people can be safe. Taking police out of the community doesn't make the community safer. There are other ways in which we can function and make the community safe, like, you know, fathers taking care of responsibilities, the community coming together and making sure the community is policing the community. And then for the people that do not care about community support, the people that do not care about selling drugs to their brothers and sisters, that do not care about gang violence, that's when police come into play and have to, have to serve justice when the people in the public don't have the ability to do so. But Brandon, one of the things that you alluded to earlier was low morale within the ranks. Why do you think morale is low and what kind of support do you think officers need right now? Yeah, I think morale is tremendously low because you have some officers that are getting painted with a broad brush, right? You see officers getting ambushed almost every single day in this country. The most ambushing that have, that have gone on in recent history then officers that conduct themselves and what they believe is acting in good faith are then charged or criminalized to later be found not guilty. In, in the case of Makai Bryant, when the officer showed up to the scene and shot Makai Bryant in defense of another young lady who she was trying to stab, he got ran through the ringer. LeBron James got on television and made mention that he should be held accountable. And all of these things put police officers in a fear that, hey, man, if I shoot a person and it becomes controversial, I go to jail over that. And that's not the intent. That's not what, what, what we're striving to do. It sounds like you're saying that the threat of accountability or actual accountability has an effect on morale. No, no, unjustified 
attacks on law enforcement hurts morale. Accountability doesn't hurt morale. Accountability strengthens police departments and strengthens the relationship between police and the community. Firing cops who are dirtbags, who should not have a badge, who are shooting people for no reason, who should not be officers in the first place, are also things that help build the community. And, and like those things we all agree on. It's the unjustified attacks on law enforcement that caused the problem. So, Hawk, in terms of the current situation, looking at things as they are now, we are seeing in many cities across the country these shortages, difficulty recruiting, and that is relevant to public safety. So what do you want to see moving forward to make sure that these departments have the resources and the officers that they need to keep the streets safe, but also making sure that we are implementing some of the social justice reforms that you would like to see. Uh, the brother claimed that police hate dirtbag cops. Well, what was the last time you saw police step up and say, fire the cop that killed Eric Garner? Fire the cops that killed uh, 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 this person or that person. The problem is you bring up cases where cops fell under scrutiny. I can name a thousand times dating back to Rodney King, dating back to the 50s and 60s, where police killed people and got away with it. The norm is not police being convicted. That only came with this heightened level of scrutiny that we placed on the police, placed on the media, placed on America. That's where this heightened level of accountability comes from. The blue always backs the blue, and the thin blue line is a real thing, and police have come out and said it. Like I said, let's just talk in the spirit of truth. Now, to answer your question, sister, to answer your question, I don't think that we need to be hiring uh, cops at the same level we did in the past. We need to heighten the level of, 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 of intellect on these police officers. We need to demand more for them. We need social workers, people with advanced degrees. The people who live in the community are asking for more social workers. They're asking for law enforcement officers. Who do you think are the individuals who are investigating crimes against children? People who are investigating domestic violence? people who are arresting bad criminals that need to be off the street, the ones who are killing our brothers and sisters in the street, who's investigating? Police officers. And in major cities like Atlanta, a lot of those police officers are black. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I think we're talking on the two sides of our neck. I think that funding police and giving them more adequate training will make them better. When we don't have enough police, and we don't have enough funding for police, then we can't do community policing. All right. I appreciate both of you and your perspectives on this. We're going to have to pick this up again another time. I really appreciate our guests being here with us. Stay with us. We've got more Revolt Black News after the break. You know, kids on the spectrum, you know, they're hard to deal with. A lot of fathers run away. A lot of parents run away from the responsibility because it's not easy raising a kid on the spectrum and with autism. And so... Um, you know, I, I just, you know, I told the world, listen, guys, we're all normal. We all have situations in this world. Uh, we love our kids, and we're here to support them. And I just want to encourage any dads, any parents out there that are having a tough time uh, with their kids, man, to stick in there and just know that they're our biggest blessing. Words of a doting dad. That is Grammy-nominated hip-hop legend Fat Joe opening up about autism, which he is all too familiar with, having raised his now 32-year-old son, Joey, who is living with the disorder. Welcome back. April is Autism Awareness Month, and we wanted to explore this issue as it relates to black children. 
Autism is much more common among black kids compared to white children. Black children also tend to be diagnosed one and a half years later than white children, which delays appropriate treatment. The stakes are high, and new research shows black children with intellectual disabilities often get misdiagnosed first, which further delays much-needed care. So is it a matter of race or class? That's what we're investigating tonight. Put the red square on the word show. Put the red square on the word show. Good job. For black parents of autistic kids, the world can be a very scary place. Last month in New York City, there was a vicious attack on an autistic teen. Early this year, a 12-year-old boy with autism in Virginia was handcuffed and concussed during a tennis program run by police officers. His mother saying they misunderstood his actions as confrontational. Last year in Saratoga County, New York, a 14-year-old with autism was tackled by officers in Target while waiting for his siblings to purchase items in the checkout line. And in 2012, an autistic 15-year-old in Illinois was fatally shot by police after his parents called for help following an argument. There's a certain feeling alone, aloneness that you know, that you feel like you're isolated, you know, when you get this diagnosis because you, you, there's no nobody really is talking about it. Memphis rapper Nakia Kinfolk Shine is shining a light on the difficulties Black children with autism experience. He and his wife struggled to find resources when his son Jameson was diagnosed in 2012 at two years old. It was very, very tough because this is not something you, there's, there's a cure for. There's no cure for autism. Nakia and his wife have six kids, but saw early on that Jameson wasn't making eye contact and reaching his speaking milestones on the typical timeline for infants and toddlers. It took two years for a doctor to finally diagnose Jameson, a common scenario for many black parents. When you have autism, there's nobody coming with pamphlets or someone saying, hey, you know, this is what's going on with your child and it's gonna be this and this and this. Because of the fact that, you know, it's the spectrum is so wide. According to the CDC, for the first time, autism is being diagnosed more frequently in black and Hispanic children than in white kids in the US. Now, about 3% of Black, Hispanic, and Asian or Pacific Islander children have been diagnosed with autism, compared with about 2% of white kids. Early diagnosis and intervention can greatly improve outcomes for children with autism, regardless of their race or ethnicity. To address these disparities, autism advocates like Camille Proctor, founder of The Color of Autism, say it is essential to improve access to healthcare and increase awareness of autism in Black communities. So in the beginning, I wanted to make sure that Black families were gaining access to diagnostics and services. So we were real heavy on early intervention. If you think there's something wrong, do something about it. And we tell people not to wait. So the organization itself, we support parents by offering support services such as support groups. Um, we have a really great support group for dads. After Camille's son was diagnosed in 2008 at the age of two, she found herself scrambling to find services and the pickings were slim to none. Camille later started her organization and became a change agent dedicated to the autism cause, offering free resources to her community. However, there are several possible reasons for this disparity. 
One factor may be a lack of access to health care, including regular checkups and screenings, which can make it more difficult to detect early signs of autism. I was still early on in my journey and I was bumping my head a lot because it was like I was going through my own thing, but I was so passionate about people, um, black people understanding that this is something that exists in our community. Another possible explanation is that there may be differences in how autism presents in black children compared to white children. Some studies suggest that black children with autism may exhibit different patterns of behavior or have different symptoms than their white peers, which could make it more difficult for clinicians to recognize the signs of autism. One of the things I was concerned about is that at one year he wasn't walking, at 13 months he wasn't walking, at 14 months he wasn't walking. 15 months, he said, okay, I'll, I'll go somewhere. I'll get up and walk. So that was a problem. He, and then when he did walk, he walked on his tiptoes. He walked on his tiptoes for a very long time. And he would also flap his hands. And he would line up everything, just line up his toys, spinning wheels, um, getting pushing a chair to a light switch so that he could turn it on and off and on and off. And so I, I, I knew that this behavior that I was seeing was not normal. I also recognized the fact that he had a speech delay where he decided, I mean, I don't wanna say he decided, but he wasn't saying um, much of anything that was audible. Um, and then I started to notice that he had sensitivity to sound, that he always had his hands over his ears, which gave me the assumption that he may have had an ear infection. So I was taking him to the ear doctor and they're like, no, there's nothing here, there's nothing. And so those were the signs that I experienced. All of this is why advocates like Nakia and Camille offer services that can include providing culturally responsive care, offering training and resources for healthcare providers, and increasing outreach and education efforts to raise awareness about autism and its symptoms. We're spreading awareness and acceptance out here, and we're and we're not afraid. We, we just, you know, it, it's it's time for it. It just it's a season for it for people to get out for some people of color to get out here and be able to like let people know what our experience is with this so that when you see a child that's out in the grocery store and checking out and you see a child that's, that may be having a behavioral issue at the moment, it ain't cause that parent ain't taking care of their business or, or oh look at this child, look at what he, this disrespect. No, the child could have autism, you know what I mean? And, and, and you gotta, you know, just don't be so quick to judge and, and try to accept what's going on. When we come back, we switch gears to the story of Nike Air, how Michael Jordan launched a multi-billion dollar brand and completely revolutionized sneaker culture. What's up everyone, Stacey Ike here from the Human to Human podcast and Recovering Perfectionist. If you're looking to explore your interpersonal relationships, have a safe space to reflect without shame, and deep dive into the many layers of being human, then come hang out with me on the Human to Human podcast where I go deep with your favorite celebrities, tastemakers, and thought leaders. Be sure to check out and subscribe to Human to Human with Stacey Ike. That's the number two, not the word two, brought to you by the Revolt Podcast Network. I'll see you there. Like that? No, like this. Like this, like this, like this, Michael.
That's Michael Jordan getting some hoop lessons from his mom, Dolores, right around the time that Nike Air launched changing the sneaker game. Well, now there's a new movie about what led to Jordan's reported $1.3 billion deal with the sneaker company, and Kennedy Rue is here with that story. Kennedy? Yes, the film is packed with star power, including Viola Davis, who co-stars with her real-life husband, Julius. They play Jordan's mom and dad in Air, and I asked them about playing parents of the greatest of all time, and also juggling the dynamics of playing an on-screen couple who are also married in real life. I'm with Nike. Do you typically make it a habit of showing up at people's front doors unannounced? I don't like to take no for an answer. Oh, man. Here we go. I want to ask you both, because you're married in real life and play Michael Jordan's parents in the movie, did you guys have to bring parts of your own relationship into your on-screen portrayal of the Jordans, or was it totally different? We definitely share the same dynamic with James being the sort of protector, the mm -hmm. personality, the outgoing one, and Dolores, yeah, well, the I don't know how much I'm like Dolores, but I feel like <laughs> the dynamic between them is very much like me and Julia, so we definitely brought that to the table. We've been together 24 years, and it's just natural. We have a natural chemistry uh, that's just who we are every day. And I think, you know, looking at footage of the Jordans, um, we saw a commonality in kind of who they were and kind of in the way we were. They were together for decades. We've been together for over a few decades. And mm -hmm. so it was just easy. And they both served up a strong performance as Michael Jordan's on-screen parents well before he became the GOAT. Davis, who plays Dolores Jordan, is the driving force behind Michael's unprecedented sneaker deal with Nike. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. Boyle, I have to ask you because Michael Jordan insisted that you played his mom. I heard that he told Ben Affleck, like he was like, Viola Davis has to play my mom. Do you have any insight as to why? Did you remind him of his mom in some way? Did you ever get that backstory? I never got the backstory. <laughs> and but at some point I know I will get the backstory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I would be flattered if he felt like I reminded him of his mother because I just think she is an incredible force. She's just one of those women that just is a force that moves through the world with all of these gifts and a huge, huge sense of um she she knows who she is. And I appreciate people like that. But um, listen, I'm flattered that Michael Jordan thought of me. I'm willing to bet my career on Michael Jordan. I mean, if you look at him, if you really look at Jordan like I did, you're gonna see exactly what I see. Julius and Viola joined some of Hollywood's A-list power players, including Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Marlon Wayans, and Chris Tucker, who round out the cast. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA All-Star Shoe. Did you meet with Michael to discuss his parents, or were you guys pretty much doing your own research for these roles? Watch a lot of YouTube. That's right. A lot of video. <laughs> a lot of video footage. And for me, it was a lot of remembrances of Michael and his father together. Mm -hmm. I saw him at games over all those years. You know, how proud he was of his son, how protective he was of his family. 
And so, you know, all that stuff helped kind of shape what we were doing with these characters. Mm From playing historical figures like Ma Rainey to playing icons still alive like former First Lady Michelle Obama, Viola Davis told me there's always the responsibility to get it right and be authentic. Does it ever feel like pressure to play these women who are still alive but also have been so instrumental in successes of, you know, our country? Yes. To answer that question, there's always pressure. There's pressure just being in the public eye in general. And then what you do is highly scrutinize. And then a lot of people, here's the thing when you're playing anyone real, everyone wants the prettiest version of that person, the nicest version, the most politically correct version. And you know, as people, as human beings, we're messy. There's irony there, there are cracks. And so when you feel like you may not have, you know, permission um, to show the cracks and someone everybody adores, that is a lot of pressure because that's what we do. We have to show the cracks, right? But um, yes, an extraordinary amount of pressure. Viola is such a boss mom in this movie, which is out now. I got to see this one. I'm all about the boss moms, right? Right. (laughs) Speaking of securing the bag, Michael Jordan is not the only black superstar bringing in tons of money for big corporations. We'll have more on that after the break. Let's continue tonight. Come on, celebrate. That's how we do it. Sometimes you got to stay in. And you know where I live. Yeah, you know what we is. Sometimes you got to stay in. Welcome to my recently won $82.6 million in a lawsuit against energy drink company Celsius, a jury finding he had been cheated out of money he was owed for promoting their products. Well, he isn't the only one showing just how much black artists are contributing to these companies. Check out that story on our Instagram account, where we also reveal just how much money Adidas has lost since cutting Kanye. Ooh, I'm assuming a whole lot of cheddar. (laughs) That wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Till next time, good night, everybody. Good night.
What's up, world? It's your boy, Big Court, from the Holding Court Podcast. If you're a fan of authentic interviews with legendary artists and notable people in the culture, subscribe to the Holding Court Podcast. See, we a show that cover artist interviews, hip-hop culture, lifestyle, and current topics. <laughs> we got the D-Boys and the B-Boys. See, ACP is where the streets and black excellence meet. And it's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators.